SBF has been convicted on all seven counts. Wait, is OpenAI much more vulnerable than you think? Jeff Bezos is moving to Miami and the real Ozempic effect. All that and more coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday edition where we break down the news in our traditional cool-headed and nuanced manner. We have a very big week of news this week, including big news on the FTX front, but then also plenty more on AI, on Bezos, on Amazon, and of course, on Ozempic, something we haven't talked about yet, but we will today. Joining us as always on Friday is Ranjan Roy of Margins. Welcome, Ranjan. I think the COVID and ZERP era is officially over. SBF <laughs> is going to jail. This is this is a big day in my life right now. Absolutely. I mean, it took four hours to decide to convict him. And apparently that was even longer because they knew that if they took like a few extra minutes, they would get free dinner. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> but are you surprised that it took such a short amount of time to convict Sam on all seven counts? No. And for regular listeners over the last few weeks, Alex and I have regularly tried to play the role of F SBF defense lawyer, and we failed miserably. And I'm very glad that uh, the way this ended, the, the actual conviction went, because it was a reminder that it was very difficult for anyone to try to come up with any reason he can get off. And to me, I think the most important thing is with these kind of trials, there's always the worry that this stuff could be too complicated. The actual, you know, uh, intricacies of what market making is and what an exchange is versus a hedge fund and a risk taker, all of these things could have been complex. But when all three of your friends and closest coworkers and co-founders all turn against you, I think that was pretty much the nail in the coffin. And Damper Mac of Axios put a poll up on Twitter yesterday asking people what they think SBF was guilty or innocent and 99% said guilty and 1% said not guilty. And I was like, wow, like Sam is lucky that Twitter is in his jury pool, but he actually would have been better off because at least <laughs> there was some doubt there. So seven counts. And um, what we're seeing now is kind of the reaction from some of the people that were there in the very early days. Of course, Sequoia decided to invest a tremendous amount of money there. And Alfred Lin who was the Sequoia partner who made the investment, uh, came out and said that this confirms what we already knew, SBF misled and deceived so many, including myself and Sequoia. But just in June 2023, Ranjan, you point out that speaking at Bloomberg's tech summit, he said if he was tasked with evaluating FTX again and for the first time, he would probably make the same investment decision. What do you take of that, the fact that I he's trying to do. engage in some revisionist history and all these people who for you know, who were with Sam up until the end, you know, are finally only now saying, ah, oh, that was a big mistake. I do not understand why Alfred Lin is trying to come out and, and try to make anything of this to deflect blame. Like, all anyone has to say, and it's totally not unreasonable, is this was an absolutely manic moment. This was, you know, like the first of all, the rise of crypto in general, then bring in all these other factors around zero interest rate and then pandemic and in um, like just masses of money coming in that and to and to do a deal, you had to go along with whatever the hot deal was. And a lot of people, including Sequoia, made a lot of money with this strategy. So just say, yes, we played fast and loose. It worked sometimes and then other times it didn't versus anything was particularly untoward or it was all SBF's fault. And let's also not forget the Sequoia profile of FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, I feel will live forever in infamy. And for those who remember, there was an article on their blog that talked about how he could be the world's first trillionaire. And then the best part was how they talked about you know, as he pitched them and convinced them, not only would they own crypto, that they would become the future vision of money and have a total addressable market of everyone, which was my favorite line. But then it even got better because then they said, also, 
the fucker was playing League of Legends the entire time. And they thought that was somehow funny or it made him worth kind of more of a nuts. genius and yeah. worth including in an investment proposal and justification on their own company blog. Obviously, that was taken down. But I mean, after you make that many mistakes, just own up to it. This is why we're so all in on this story, by the way, because it's not just a story of crypto fraud. It really tells you so much about the whole ecosystem and about an era. And you can really go in and uh, and dissect it. And, you know, speaking of playing fast and loose, I mean, the Sam, you know, every time there's a big criminal case, I wonder why we don't hear more from the defendant who probably has their side of the story to tell and probably wants facts out there that that aren't out there in their in their central discourse well now i know why they tend to stay quiet because say maybe maybe he would have been convicted otherwise but one thing is for sure is that sam bankman freed through all of his media appearances and his inability to shut up effectively cooked his own uh cooked himself in this case and said so much stuff that was held against him in court that he personally just could not get out of it i mean is that is that a good lesson that you absolutely do not have to tweet through it no, I think that's hopefully the best lesson from this because I think that over the last, let's say, maybe five to seven years, I think it's actually been a really, really bad lesson for future up-and-coming entrepreneurs or just leaders of any sort that the 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 lesson has always been you can always tweet through it. And I won't name names, but that's business leaders, politicians, that's all types of people that the kind of lesson everyone's taken away is the sheer velocity of and like uh, ferocity of communications is uh, is how you would get past any kind of problem and deflect everything. And this was a reminder that, I mean, again, how open and shut this case was that it didn't save him. And, and boy, he tried. I mean, remember the 60 Minutes episode? That sure to do. me was, I think that was even worse. And I still have not read the Michael Lewis book. You have. I just finished uh, it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, wait, how do you feel now? You finished it right before the conviction. We talked a little bit last week, but but ha have your feelings on the book changed at all? I think I'm going to bring that in right now because we're going to go to sentencing predictions. And I think it factors in what I learned at the end of the Lewis book. So, okay, so Ooh. Sam faces up to 115 years in prison. What do you predict he gets and what do you think he should get? I, this is a tough one for me because I'll, I will readily admit and sometimes a rarity in uh, punditry, I have absolutely no idea how criminal sentencing works and I'm happy for that because the actual like nuts and bolts of it. But I mean, if we talk about how much do I think he should get, it's a tough one. Like there has been no, I mean, what's... Bernie Madoff got life, basically. Uh, wait, how long did Elizabeth Holmes get? 11 years. I think she got 11 years. Yeah, so Elizabeth Holmes, who put people's lives actually physically in danger, only got 11 years. Like, there has been no real, uh, you know, very tough sentence on any kind of white-collar criminal and like this, so... Is it going to be something like 10 or 11 years or will it be something much, much more significant like a Bernie Madoff? Um, I think it should be interesting, but what I think I hope he gets enough that it deters people from doing this kind of thing again. OK, so I might be a little Lewis pilled because at the very end of the book, he <laughs> makes this point that John Ray, who is in charge of the bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy of FTX, was able to find seven billion of the eight billion missing assets. Seven billion of eight or eight, eight and change. Then you add in the fact that Bitcoin has appreciated and are is is FTX in the green right now. And I don't think that should matter for the conviction, but I do think that should matter for the sentencing because if they're able to return the money to the people whose money they lost, then that matters in terms of how long you're gonna put this person in prison for. Wait. How did they find seven billion of eight billion from the money? That's what that's what I'm. I have a hard time wrapping my head around when, what like you have some amount of money is spent on renaming the Miami Heat Arena, right. on paying Tom Brady and Giselle. Like that's money out the door, that's gone, that's spent. Then, 
idea, theoretically, you have cash sitting around, cash that's been invested in however many either angel investments, one of which is Anthropic, but then a lot that went into total shit coins. Like, like how did they, you're telling me they genuinely recovered seven eighths of all the money that was ever invested into FTA, that was ever deposited into I mean, FTX? I'm not saying it. John Ray is saying it. <laughs> And he's the guy, I mean, he's not exactly in favor of these folks. So I think a tremendous amount was largely the the clawbacks. They probably made some, I don't know if they, if it was the arena that they clawed back from, but they definitely clawed back. And then FTX did make money. I mean, it was making money. The whole problem was that it then took the, you know, the actual customer deposit and lent it elsewhere, but it was making money. So I don't know, maybe look, I'm not here to defend Sam Bacon. No, 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 I'm just taking the public that's pronouncements. Fair. And so I do think that that plays in. I think Sam is going to get 20 years. That's my prediction. I think he should get five to 10. But, okay. I, I mean, I'll match your 20. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I 20, think 20, 20 to 30 is really right. most likely. Could you, I mean, given that the, a lot of this money is going to be clawed back, could you give him five to 10 and bar him from getting anywhere near anything financial except for a U.S. Treasury bond for the rest of his life? That would seem fair to me. I, I'm ready for the 2050 Sam Bankman Freed Redemption Tour, where he's going to be uh, giving uh, financial workshops and lessons all over the country. Okay, so somebody did take a mid-journey photo of Sam uh, Bankman Freed and put it in my mentions, showing what he would look like after like 40, you know, 40 years in prison or whatever. And it's I I. Just looking at that image, I just, and you know how Mid Journey makes everybody look better than they actually look. Um, <laughs> I just have this prediction that Sam is going to just get in sick shape, you know, cut his hair in prison and become like this um, object of Dawn. romantic fascination among geeks, geeks everywhere. Like he's going to become like the next weird, weirdo sex in, Martin Shre- in the U.S. Martin uh, Shkreli. Yeah, Shkreli. exactly. <laughs> All right. Bold predictions here on Big Technology Podcast. So speaking of bold predictions and and proclamations, I wrote a story in Big Technology this week that's going to lead us into a discussion of the state of AI today. Because, and I think we've probably talked about this, but I don't know if we've talked about it as concretely as I laid it out in Big Technology this week. But I wrote this story talking about how open AI is a lot more vulnerable than you think. And basically the main premise is that OpenAI rose to prominence building great products on top of other people's breakthroughs, including the Transformer model. And it had this head start because people didn't fully understand what was going to happen. In fact, if folks listened to Gaurav Namade, who came on the show uh, on Monday, they would have understood that Google itself didn't even realize what it had on its hands with the Transformer model in 2017. But everybody is now cued into what this technology can do. And so therefore, there's a tremendous amount of competition and there's commoditization. And I listed six areas where um, OpenAI will face competition and is not stacked up perfectly in terms of its ability to compete. So I'll just go through them very, very, very quickly. One is model commoditization. It owns GPT-4, which is the best model on the market. But you're seeing you know, new competition from Gemini within Google that's going to come out imminently. You're seeing Anthropic, right, which is getting these billion dollars of investments, Llama 2, and even, who knows, maybe Elon Musk's XAI will factor. So people are going to have choice. When people have choice, we go to two, which is margin compression, which is now if there are so many different LLM models, they're going to have to compete based off of cost. The margin comes down. And in fact, one entrepreneur told me that he doesn't even see this as a money-making operation and the infrastructure is really going to be the thing that, that makes money, which points to NVIDIA. Number three is the hits business. You know, when everybody has access to this technology and everyone's building, you really need hits in order to succeed. And OpenAI has had even a model this year that they were working on that they had to scrap because it wasn't meeting expectations. The fourth is the open source threat. You know about that very much. I had a VC who told me that the trend now is to start on open, start your company on OpenAI and then build to the point where you're model agnostic, where you can plug any model in and the, the actual experience of the product won't change. And then when you go to a certain point, you go open source and you customize and you build proprietary. And so you don't rely on open AI anymore. Fifth is this move to smaller models. Open AI's chat GPT or GPT-4 can do everything. And you don't need to do everything if you're a specialized model like Harvey, for instance, for law. 
And so people are going to move to smaller, more specialized models, which aren't as impressive if you speak with them as a chat GPT, but might even get the job done better. And the six is that it's just too close to Microsoft. And you have Anthropic, which is making deals with Google here and Amazon there. And you have OpenAI that's attached at the hip to Microsoft with $13 billion of funding. And it's going to make it much more difficult to show up prominently in an AWS or a Google and all this adds up to OpenAI looking much more vulnerable than the popular narrative makes it out to be. Okay, I've laid the case out, and now I turn it over to you. How do you react? I would say, so as a consumer, uh, have you used the recent updates within ChatGPT? I'm sure uh, I have. But, but, but basically, so now it is incredible. And I have gushed about what they previously called code interpreter and then called, I think it was data analysis. And now is simply built into the interface where you can throw in a CSV and it can help you do really complex calculations. Now also Dolly 3, Dolly 3 is so much better. So, so, so much better, actually usable and even cooler. Now within ChatGPT, you can simply type in a basic prompt, like I want a unicorn on a skateboard. And then, cause that's the kind of stuff I look for. And then it'll actually create an image, but when creating it, that image, expand that prompt a great deal and then tell you what that prompt was. So it's actually taking mm -hmm. kind of the ChatGPT element of let me help you create a prompt that's better and let me create you the image that's good. So all this stuff, it, it was a reminder to me that OpenAI, I actually think one thing that would push against a lot of this is their strength has really been as much on the product design side as it has been on the infrastructure hardware model side. And, and like one example for me was, again, GPT-3 existed forever, but ChatGPT, its most brilliant UI mechanism was how it kind of, looks like it's thinking like it could actually create that answer for you and spit it all out in one big chunk but instead the letters appear as though there's this like sentient being thinking and that i honestly made th made made people feel like it's much more magical and that's what really helped the virality of it so all that being said i think on the consumer side what they've done just in the last one month is puts them so far ahead for me versus any of the competitors, Claude, which is from Anthropic, their chatbot, and got barred from Google, anything else. All that being said, I think the most important thing you said was your fourth point, that a good company that's developing on this technology basically should be able to move to the point that it becomes model agnostic. And I have seen that. I've worked on projects where we've gotten there already, and I really believe that's the future. So to me, the consumer side of OpenAI is way ahead of everyone else, but that's the side that's going to probably lose money. And then on the enterprise side is where they're really going to need to secure and win these deals and make more and more and more money to make up for all the compute that goes in to the consumer product. And I think more and more companies are going to see, I don't need them for this. I can actually, again, whether it's the open source side, whether it's more specialized models, all of these things. So I, I went through the entire example of why I think ChatGPT has gotten so good to get to the point where I do agree with you. And I think OpenAI as a business is in a lot of trouble. Yeah, exactly. And so it's so interesting because there's both the consumer and the enterprise point. And what's going to be the bigger business for them? I think we've always agreed that it's going to be enterprise. And you're right, like their consumer product is great. I think that Dolly 3, which you can also access with Bing, is amazing. It's actually, in some cases, for me, surpassed Midjourney, which is wild because Midjourney was so far I ahead agree. I of agree. Dolly 2. Completely. That being said, the, the companies are, these, these are demos for the companies to be able to provide their technology to developers, for companies to build on top of the technology and that is where the competition is very, very, very intense. Yep. And, and even more, the Microsoft thing was interesting for me because, again, and, and I've gushed about this before, but for anyone who's used their data analysis with it that's now built into ChatGPT, again, throw in a CSV rather than having to look up different Excel formulas to do simple analyses or even complicated ones, reminding myself how to do a VLOOKUP, like, that stuff just happens instantly just by querying with natural language questions. But 
Microsoft's probably going to put that in their co-pilot and might not even use OpenAI. They've announced partnerships with Facebook's Llama. Like, like they're, they've also been operating at a bit of an arm's length. So, so where they really have an edge in a way that enterprises need them, I, I'm not sure. Okay. And that gets to sort of the new models that are starting to come up, right? Because if there's going to be a real commoditization, you need stellar models that are going to show up and are going to be able to make a difference here. And I just read this insider story from a few weeks back as I was researching where the progress is of Google's Gemini, which is the competitor to GPT-4 that I imagine is imminent. And it is fascinating. So there's a Google VP talking about it in the story. And they say, I've seen some pretty amazing things. Like I'm trying to bake a cake, draw me three pictures of the steps how to how to ice a three-layer cake. And Gemini will actually create those images. So these are completely novel pictures. They are not pictures from the internet. It's able to speak in imagery with humans now, not just text. I mean, to me, that is fascinating, right? The fact that these models are moving multimodal and Gemini in particular, if you can communicate in imagery, the power is unbelievable. Yeah, but so, okay. So on one side, the multimodality, I think is, I agree, getting really interesting. And, uh, and, and Google, I do think, especially from the organize, what's their thing organizing and the world's information or whatever the tagline yeah, was or used it. to be. That's yeah. the, Go the Google <laughs> proclamation is we'll organize the world's information or whatever. Or whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Make the cars fly. We'll put that in the whatever. Well, no, I, I was, I, I, I was thinking the don't be evil was one of the, that was like the motto, but then they had something to that make a, the world's a, a information. <laughs> yeah. Searchable. Yeah. That was, a, <laughs> if you can, just, don't be evil. If you can, you don't have, I mean, maybe a little bit, but, <laughs> um, but I, uh, yeah, no, no. So Google and already we generative search getting really interesting. They invented the transformer. So on the pure model strength, I think they're going to be a formidable competitor. It definitely hasn't translated to either the enterprise sales side or the front end consumer side yet, but they mm -hmm. clearly should be a competitor. But to me, there's even a, I've talked to you about this offline before. There's a company writer.com. They just raised a hundred million series B. They have a whole, the way I kind of like was thought of them, it's a third way. So you have either the Googles and Microsofts of the world, just gigantic. They're going to incorporate generative AI into the products you already are in, or you have Anthropic, uh, you have OpenAI, these kind of like pure tech AI companies. Writer, what's interesting to me is it's just kind of like a classic enterprise software company. They basically sell full stack generative AI to industries like healthcare, financial services that have really, really specific needs and information structures and hierarchies and regulatory considerations. So at that point, like going in and basically being the company that builds the software that brings generative AI into a, a company's existing proprietary software, because a lot of these companies do have existing systems. like it's a different way of approaching it. And I actually think it's a really interesting way because maybe the next giant company is not just a technology company. It's also a more enterprise focus services, sales, uh, consulting, like a company that brings all this technology across an entire stack of an existing large complex enterprise. Cause the idea that, you know, like some giant healthcare giant is going to figure this stuff out on their own. I think is a far cry from reality. I think the idea that uh, an open AI, I just never imagine is going to have some huge sales team or like, you know, customer success operation that's genuinely that will work well. So yeah, I, I think uh, there could be different companies that we're not even talking about right now right. that start to actually, which, you know, make an impact. And that's actually kind of exciting. Exactly. competition yeah there's going to be real competition and it's this whole discussion that goes back to like are you just going to build a thin wrapper on chat gpt well what's the difference between a thin wrapper on a cloud uh, uh instance and a successful SaaS company right 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so and what was really interesting that writer they did is so they have a total consumer facing SaaS product, but then built their own foundation models. And I think mm -hmm. that's the, that kind of full stack approach you're going to see more and more from companies. Again, you'd mentioned like Harvey Law, you, you know, other industry or vertical specific where they don't just build the model and the technology, they build you the model and the software. And you go in and it does is able to do both for you and across the entire stack. To me, that seems like a more reasonable business in the future versus whatever. Building open on the open AI. AI API. And that's the issue is customizability. Yeah. People have been talking about that. And so like one of the things that one of the founders I spoke with said uh, was that people are going to compete on price or customizability. Maybe Anthropic is the one that's going to do that because they also just ended up in that with another 2 billion from Google this week. And that's 1.5 million billion over time, but 500 million in upfront cash. And Ranjan, you texted this to me this week and I was like, you know, get that compute, but the cash actually, as you pointed out, makes a lot of, uh, makes a big difference for them. So how do you read this investment for Anthropic? Yeah, well, they are playing everyone very well. Cause again, they were, they had Google investment, then suddenly a splashy Amazon announcement, then suddenly Google's back in with cash up front, as right. opposed to just those those juicy cloud credits. So I think it's a reminder that like, and we, we talked about this very thing last week, Anthropic realizes, OpenAI certainly has realized already, their brands empower enterprise sales teams at these giant cloud providers at the Azure salesperson being able to say, oh, we have open AI as part of our whole suite makes him closing that deal or her closing that deal a lot faster. Same mm -hmm. way Google understands that to say Anthropic is getting buzzy right now. So, but I also, what are, I don't know what they're going to do with all that cash and how they're going to realize those valuations in an actual revenue and monetary level. That one always worries me, and uh, we'll see. We'll see what they come up with, especially because they have somebody else to worry about, and that is none other than Mr. Elon Musk, who this. Oh wait, Saturday... wait, sorry, sorry. We do have a comment in the from LinkedIn about IBM Watson. So got Watson instead love of here. In, instead of and we'll get into Elon Musk, but let's also just take a moment to recognize IBM Watson. What What are your thoughts on IBM Watson and this entire? Uh, competitive battle, Alex? I'm, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say about <laughs> IBM Watson. I really, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to just turn it over to you. I, I, I'm setting Alex up with that one, but I, I went to uh, IBM Watson conference in 2015, and I'll never forget they had, they were walking around, they, they were handing out chocolates, and they said, these chocolates were designed by Watson. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they're like, it's a recipe that's been generated by AI. <laughs> and this is what they were doing instead of actually building these products. Like they were, they could, they could have been, I mean, they, they literally had the branding. They won the chess Je or jeopardy chess, all these things. They were the first and then they threw it all away. Turns out you need technology and not just marketing. And by the way, you've kicked off a Watson war in the comments, Ron John. So oh, I'm proud thanks. of yourself on that. Right? Yep. We got Watson. I love Watson is trash. Oof. Okay. All right. So let's talk about Elon. Okay. Uh, Elon is introducing his XAI model this week on Saturday. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be interesting. I mean, it's coming to limited folks according to Reuters and it looks like it's another LLM. He had, he did recruit some real talent, people from DeepMind, people from, I think, people from OpenAI. So I wouldn't count it out right away. What's your expectations here? It's Elon vaguely tweeting about uh, a technology that will help Tesla's stock in the short term. So as a typical thing, my, I'll say my expectations are not not profound, but but you Hold on. you you're you, missing I, the fact that this guy there would be no open AI if it wasn't for this guy. He not I, only I founded agree. it, he recruited its chief scientist. There'd be I nothing agree. without Elon. No, no, I agree, but it's kind of like in a way, it now got to where it is, and this whole revolution's happened 
because he went hands off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying okay. it. I'm saying it. If he if he was all in hands on over there, I don't think any of this is happening in the way it is today. But again, he, we'll, we'll see. I, the point you made, and we, I think it was a few months ago when they first announced it, the talent that they recruited was insane. So like yeah. they have they have the team they, and they resources have, doesn't help yeah. to, doesn't hurt to have his money behind you also. No, team so, resources, um, but Elon is also in favor of regulation or at least some light touch AI regulation. But now I don't know if you've seen it this week, and I think I should probably write about this next week because it got so juicy. Like the entire deep mind conspiracy, like some of the original, sorry, the entire deep learning conspiracy, some of the real original. Um, researchers of, of this technology it uh they they fought pretty publicly on twitter this week about the alarmist like ai will kill us stuff and talking about how um you know actually it won't actually this is just regulatory capture and then you had uh, andrew ing who is the co-founder of google brain here's the headline from TechCrunch: google brain co-founder says big tech companies are inflating fears about the risks of ai wiping out humanity because they want to dominate the market and he goes there are definitely large tech companies that would rather not have to compete with open source. So they're creating fear of AI leading to human extinction. It's been a weapon for lobbyists to argue for your legislation. That would be very damaging to the open source community. I think what's interesting right now is we're starting to get some like prominent loud voices talk about how this is all about regulatory capture and people should just shut up about the fears that they have about AI wiping us out. What do you think about this? I am so happy because we, and we, we have both talked about this on the podcast. And I, when we were talking about this, like maybe three, four months ago, or even before, or when was the letter again? I can't even tell Six time months when ago, it comes to because generative the pause, AI the pause would have been, yeah. Yeah. yeah remember the pause, the, the pause uh, at the time, but that's what both, it, it was so clear that this is a form of, like, it was such an awkward thing for these companies to say, this is going to kill us all, but we're still working on it. And I'm very glad that uh, it's becoming, it is almost becoming a meme right now. And I've seen plenty of pretty good memes about, you know, like it's going to kill you all, but sorry, I need to get back to working on that thing that will kill you all. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so, no, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it never made any, again, Elon Musk is, is tripling down on this. He's just talking to Rishi Sunak, the UK prime minister about this entire topic. And meanwhile, cars are on the road with full self-driving. Like it's, it, it's the disconnect for me never has never made any sense and i'm very very glad that like people like andrewing and others like very very prominent people who have led this entire revolution are now saying it out loud okay so now here is an, a tricky regulation question and a funding question that i think will be fun to discuss so on the phone with the ai founder this week he told me that he thinks the next place that these companies are going these big ai companies are going for funding sovereign wealth funds and they've basically tapped out all of the money in the vc community in big tech i mean doesn't get much bigger than getting multi-billion dollar investments from amazon and google and they're going to need money to pay for compute next so the next place they go sovereign wealth funds maybe the public investment fund of saudi arabia now that money can help push the you know cutting edge forward however if you believe there's some national security benefit in keeping this technology, you know, out of the hands of certain countries, do you then allow these companies to go fundraise anywhere in the world? Or do you restrict their sources of funding to maybe prevent them from raising from sovereign wealth funds? What's your perspective on that, Rajan? So my perspective on this is the beauty of the moment is that sovereign wealth funds, because sovereign wealth funds specifically, and there's history here because in the 2000s, I worked in emerging market trading and a lot of the currency work we did was with sovereign wealth funds. They never invested in this kind of stuff until we lived in a zero interest rate, interest rate world. So sovereign wealth funds might have some small allocation towards adventure or more high risk uh, assets, but 
in general, these are gigantic pools of money that we're supposed to invest relatively conservatively, especially the word pension fund, you know, like screams conservatism. But when it, the rates were zero, that's the only place they can go. And right now, these are not, like if you're coming in uh, Anthropic Series G at a trillion dollar valuation or what i don't even what is open ai right now probably they like talk 100 80, billion or something 80 to 90 billion but we don't fully know until they billion. raise their next round yeah exactly so like it, it now that there are plenty of vehicles for getting your seven to ten percent out there in the world at a low risk for these kind of big pools of money i think these the idea that they are going to be able to be tapped for this kind of investment is going to be gone. And I think that's going to be one of the reminders that we're living in a completely different world right now. And that's why I actually think that's what's been interesting about these flashy Google and Amazon deals. And we've talked about it so much that the numbers are big, but already the cash is dwindling. And that's why cloud compute becomes part of it. But the days mm -hmm. of the Saudi PIF public investment fund pushing money into a vision fund for Masayoshi's son and then a uh, dog walking app getting $3 billion or whatever it is, uh, hundreds of millions for billions of valuation. I think that's long gone. And I think they, they, we're going to start to see some pressure on these companies soon. Yes. But if you have all this oil wealth, you got to put it somewhere. You're not going to spray it freely as you would. Maybe you make a direct investment and that, you know, where are you going to put it? I mean, maybe AI. Well, no, so if you're looking for financial return, I mean, treasuries and corporate debt are looking pretty good right now. Uh -huh. uh, if you are looking for purely national, like national geopolitical strategic considerations, then yeah, then you're if right. you're looking at this money- So to do you make a law to prevent that? Cepheus, uh, the committee for, what is it? Foreign investment in the US. I think uh -huh. they're gonna get busy on this stuff pretty okay. soon. Yeah, I think that I, I think they're definitely going to have their hands full very soon because I do agree that it, it, there's there's going to be so much around the national security elements within this entire space coming soon, unless the open source movement and uh, smaller models and companies make it an even playing field for everybody. Exactly. All right. Here's one comment before we go to break from Noble Ackerson saying that they draw parallels from how folks like Chamath made so much wealth in building social media platforms only to leave and warn us about social media's influence. And in this case, with the AI concerns, it's it's like that, but it's even it's even worse because it's, you know, en route to making money from AI, trying to warn us of its dangers and ice out other competitors. It's it's not a great moment. All right, let's go to break. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit about Jeff Bezos's move to Miami, this Ozempic effect and whether it's gone overboard. And then we'll see what what else we get to. Maybe we'll wish happy birthday to the unicorns. It's the 10th birthday of unicorns, of the term, at least. All right, back right after this. Have you been feeling the effects of stress, burnout, or anxiety at work? Workplace culture is changing, but we're not done yet. Listen to the Anxious Achiever podcast to rethink the relationship between your career and your mental health. Hear stories from psychologists, entrepreneurs, even athletes and celebrities. Learn how they balance success and ambition with staying mentally healthy and walk away with practical advice you can implement today. Get The Anxious Achiever wherever you find your podcasts. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast. Ron John Roy is here with us from Margins. We're talking about all the week's news. Some news just dropped. It seems like Jeff Bezos is about three years too late on the move to Miami phenomenon. He posted on Instagram that he's moving to Miami, of course, to spend some time with his parents. But... Uh, there is another side to this, and this is from Rob Frank from CNBC. Jeff Bezos says he's moving to Florida to be closer to his parents. Another reason, taxes. Washington State has a new 7% tax on capital gains, so he will owe $70 million in state taxes for every $1 billion of Amazon stock he sells, and he sells a lot. Of course, you go to Florida, 
and you're not paying those taxes. So what do you think about the Bezos move to Florida? It's kind of interesting to me. It's like I didn't even realize that billionaires like announce that they're moving places as opposed to just acquiring, you know, another property. But maybe the tax situation is what inspires the need to post about it. Well, well, we started this episode saying that the ZERP era is over with SBF getting convicted. But Bezos to Miami sounds like as 2021 as it gets. Like next thing you know, he's going to be like high-fiving Mayor Suarez at a crypto conference and uh, oh my God. it feels like it yeah. feels like we're back um but i but i will say it, it our other lesson from earlier in the episode was to you can't tweet or post your way through it and maybe that's a problem and when this announcement i was kind of confused why say it when there's such clear tax implications like no one cares where you're living or moving does he think people care um but when it raises all of these kind of issues I, I do wonder about it, but to me, the, there's bigger Amazon news this week. Did you see the FTC stuff? Sure did. Um, this is, this, I think, and we, we've talked a lot about the FTC and whether they're going to be successful on this big lawsuit against Amazon. And one of the, out of uh, documents that were unredacted this week, is, is this idea that starting in basically 2014, when Amazon launched its advertising business, very small, is at a certain point... In a, a few years down the road, they're what they call defect ads, ads that were algorithmically very clearly labeled as not rela- relevant to the product or from scammers. At a certain point, it was, ve- it was explicitly told that they should accept more defects as a way to increase the total number of advertisements shown and to drive up Amazon's advertising profits. Now, what that means is very interesting, especially in the case of the FTC and Amazon, because that is a necessary price increase on the consumer. The more advertising that needs to be paid will be the consumer uh, suppliers will raise their prices and now consumers will have to pay more. My favorite example was uh, if you were to search uh, for bottled water, uh, you would get the result for buck urine, buck urine, not deer urine, but buck urine. That seems possible um, to me. <laughs> Reasonable. I mean, maybe Amazon understands <laughs> that you are actually looking for buck urine. Right. Then they had simple well, ones data, that like man. big data. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the data tells the truth about who we are as a people. You want you say bottled water, you want buck urine. Exactly. Um, but then there's simple ones like if you turn. Uh, typed in a search for LA Lakers, it would show you a Seattle Seahawks t-shirt instead. And again, like the buck urine one, maybe in some circles would not be considered egregious. The Seattle Seattle Seahawks example, maybe you could say they had some understanding that like, uh, that Seahawks, you search for the Lakers, you want the Seahawks. But in reality, it was it's clear that their algorithms were labeling these ads as defects and still including them. And if you think about right now, and we've, uh, you know, it's endless, myself included, the idea of how fast and big Amazon's advertising business has gotten, and then how that high margin business helps subsidize the e-commerce side of the business, and how this whole flywheel, and the, along with AWS, and how this whole flywheel keeps working. It's a reminder that to get there, there's definitely some not above board things that happened that were very that clearly happened so i think to me this is a huge moment for the ftc to start and and it was interesting to see how they're going to start dripping more and more of these things and again buck urine i'm not going to forget that that's a memorable one that is definitely a memorable one i still think the ftc doesn't win but i don't know they've got more and more data and more and more evidence against amazon you know you get in front of a judge and you never know what's going to happen well, hold on. How, how do you argue that uh, no, like willfully and knowingly accepting a certain type of advertisement in order to boost revenue and profits and the overall business as a whole, when that's going to raise prices on consumers? How, like, what's what do you think the argument against that's going to be? It's pretty simple. It's that's not illegal monopoly maintenance. It's uh, you know business practice. Just maybe a sketchy business practice, but it's not rising to the level of illegal monopoly maintenance. Like the burden for the FTC is so high 
that them proving their case is going to be so difficult. They just don't have the laws on their side. No, but if you show that increases prices, which it very necessarily does, and then that both passes on price increases to consumers, but then also to suppliers as well, because now the advertising business is mm -hmm. growing, so suppliers have to buy into that, which previously, if it wasn't growing, that they wouldn't have to to compete, which then turns the entire search part of your business into an advertising-driven one where it's essentially pay-to-play. Like, I think on both sides of the marketplace, you're seeing price increases. Okay, maybe you have a point, and maybe this is why Bezos is moving to Miami, is just to <laughs> sell his Amazon stock as soon as he can without state maybe, taxes. Maybe. And hopefully get away with it for him. Well, for him. Uh, all right, let's and, talk and about he's this. Ripped, and he's ripped right now. So I mean, let's be honest. He's in he great living, shape. So. He was, yeah, he was living in Miami, Miami spiritually. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this was already, already his home. He's just actually going there. Let's end with this. There's this Ozempic effect that people have been talking about that these weight loss pills have effectively put a damper on the potential earnings of anything from snacks to, um, I don't know, even oil companies because airplanes won't need as much fuel to fly fat people around anymore because everybody's going to be skinny and then therefore airline prices are going to be cheaper. No, this is seriously think. This is serious thinking. Uh, on Wall Street, and um, <laughs> go, go, on, go ahead. Hold on, all right. wait, wait, finish, finish, and then I'll go. Okay, so this is coming from the Wall Street Journal. It's a reputable publication. It says the Ozempic effect on Wall Street has gone overboard, but it lays it out that um, it says it these drugs have led to speculation that gigantic opportunities await those that would benefit from the aggregate weight loss. Wild scenarios conjured up by analysts include the notion that junk food companies might pivot to selling carrot sticks and airlines might sell on gas owing to lighter passengers. And um, look at this. Just listen to this. Okay, sorry. <laughs> listen to this. The S&P Food and Beverage Select Industry Index has declined 12% over the past three months. Shares of Kraft Heinz are down 10% over the same period. Hershey's is down 19%. And Coca-Cola and Pepsi are down 9% and 12%, respectively. What the Wall Street Journal said effectively is, okay, we're going to get to, you know, to the other side of this thing. But just setting up what this looks like, Wall Street Journal has argued this is a real investor phenomenon, that they're bailing on junk food and all these other type of stocks because they believe that, um, you know, skinny pills will make people reject them. So I, <laughs> yes, the... Fat people on planes, definitely, uh, when the Wall Street Journal starts writing about that, you know we are at a moment, and perhaps we've gotten ahead of our skis, but I think, to, so I, I read one piece, it was in the Atlantic, it was actually from May, uh, did scientists accidentally invent an anti-addiction drug? And what was so interesting to me about this, and this is where I think it's still very, very early, but I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who is a doctor and he was, he's very bullish in terms of overall, he thinks this is going to quote unquote change everything, um, is even addictive behaviors far beyond uh, eating. So again, like junk food and the way it's been manufactured and created, and maybe this is all just kind of a hopeful thing like is all centered around triggering dopamine and getting people to want more and buy more and buy things. But even think about online shopping or shopping in general is built in the same way. If Meta's entire advertising model is still built on dopamine. Meta's product is built on dopamine. So like the, if this truly does curb addictive behavior and, and I think normally associating addictive with like eating a, you know, like, just binge eating or something that's super excessive versus small bits of what is essentially an addictive behavior, even though it's not me opening Twitter again. And, uh, and then even when I'm like, I shouldn't, uh, I think that if it's for real and mm -hmm. I've people I trust have said, it's definitely for real. It changes a lot of the way products are designed things are built the way a lot of the economy functions. Cause right now that's so much of, especially the U S economy is built on exactly that type of interaction.
You bet. I think we got to get Andrew Uberman on here to have a special episode talking about these this uh, impact of dopamine and um, and and how we might be changing that. But okay, so here's the thing, though. This is the other side of it. Um, the Wall Street Journal says that the market has gotten way ahead of this. That these daily these drugs uh, are nowhere near to where they need to be, and they cost upward of ten thousand dollars a year per person putting them out of the reach of the majority of the more than 100 million obese and overweight people in the U.S. So I'm kind of curious what you think about this. Like, first of all, can you explain, like, why the market would – the market knows this. Why would the market react this way, understanding that the broader impact won't be felt for quite some time, if ever? Yeah, I, I do agree. I think the market reaction is definitely an overreaction. And, and when I'm talking about this stuff and thinking about mm-hmm. it, it's still in the, like – magical theoretical exciting visionary mm-hmm. envisioning different futures type of thing not uh you know uh, coca-cola sales are going to be down in q2 2024 so i think it's definitely gotten ahead of itself but i think this is where again like i have been surprised i have talked to people who i was very surprised who have taken ozempic or one of the i think it's like semi-glutides or something like that semi-glutides so yeah, Wagovi's another by one. The way. Yeah, Can't yeah, watch yeah. A so I, football without seeing it. I've talked to people who I never would have expected who take it. So at that point, I'm like, maybe, it may, and and maybe, just just hypothesizing a a Wall Street research analyst could be the personality that has felt the magic of one of these Wigovi right. Ozempic, and then mm-hmm. the moment is one of those things that once you under see it and feel it and understand it at a personal level then maybe you start extrapolating a lot more quickly but but yeah. I, look i, I think it's we're, great we're, that we have these tools right we have to fight back in some ways against big food and like if it's pharmaceutical so be it they're using chemicals also so i think it's good that we have these tools i'm just interested in the fact that the market is like now such a firm believer that it will go years ahead of the broad impact i'm actually curious now let's just end with this like Talk a little bit about the people that, I mean, if you're willing, you, why, you know, you didn't expect them to be on it, but they're on it. Was that just because that they were skinnier than you imagined? Yeah. Yeah. That's where I was going with that. (laughs) It was, it was more, it was more a, uh, defensive weight mechanism rather than an active offensive one. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. But so it's almost to help you stay skinny. So then you're like, okay, then the addressable market no longer is only those seeking to lose oh, weight, it's but also it's it's no longer Sam Bankman-Fried is addressing a total addressable market of everyone. It's these drugs are. So yeah, no, that to me, that's what made it more interesting. Uh, so yeah, I think it, to me, it's still very early days. Who knows? Maybe there's going to be some insane side effects that come up pretty soon that derail this entire conversation remember two years ago we were all going to be eating fake meat burgers and didn't quite pan out so who knows i trust the technology very interesting (laughs) stuff all right um at the end of this i'm just going to go short nabisco just kidding but (laughs) maybe not the worst strategy this is not investment advice but maybe not the worst (laughs) strategy ranchan thanks so much for joining really great to speak with you every week all right, great stuff. Thanks, everybody, for being here with us. Great, great crowd live. We had comments today and questions, which is awesome. And thanks to everybody at home who's listening. Really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back on Wednesday with a conversation with Rob Copeland about his new Ray Dalio book. That should be fun. I'm about to go record that. And then again, Ranjan and I will be back next week. We're going to talk about streaming along with the rest of the week's news. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.